Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here at Miranda Warnings with Vincent Bonventry, Justice Robert Jackson, distinguished professor at Albany Law School. Uh, he's a professor at Albany Law School and also was uh, selected by Chief Justice Warren Berger in 1986 to serve as a Supreme Court Judicial Fellow. Welcome. Welcome, Professor Great to Bond be here Bertrand. with you, Dave. Uh, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court and the nomination process today, which I'm very excited about. Obviously, it's been in the news right. lately. Uh, 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 Professor Bonventry is also the author of the New York Court Watcher, uh, a blog which uh, contains information about the Supreme Court process. So let's talk a little bit about the nomination sure. process. I'd like to just get a baseline from you about where you stand. So can you tell me, do you like beer? Do I? <laughs> uh, I could drink beer every once in a while if I'm having a hamburger, but I'm a bourbon and scotch guy who really... <laughs> All right, so now we know. I also know that there was... I drink lots of bourbon. I probably have drank too much bourbon. <laughs> I, I, I also note that you signed on to a letter of over 1,000 professors right. of law that uh, opposed the nomination of uh, Brett Kavanaugh for right. uh, the Supreme Court. Um, and I know that that's something that was published and was sent to the Senate. Um, has that ever happened before, that uh, over 1,000 Professors of law from around the country. I don't. I don't know if there's been anything of that magnitude, but certainly, I mean, law professors are not shy about letting their views be known and signing letters. But this was pretty extraordinary that there were that many. So let's talk about this. Uh, the Supreme Court process. Ordinarily, there's a vetting process that's done by the the president in the White House. Um, in this uh, particular instance, it seems that the vetting process has been outsourced to the Federalist Society. Right. What are your thoughts on the vetting process about, before we even get to the judge, how, sure. how this person gets nominated? Well, uh, let's start with this. Uh, and let's not talk about the nomination process as though, you know, we're following the yellow brick line to the Wizard of Oz. The, the nomination process is political. That's what it, it's always been that way. Uh, we hear people complaining, oh, it's gotten so political today. Oh, come on. You know, George Washington appointed all Federalists to the bench. So did John Adams. And then Jefferson and Madison appointed all Jeffersonians Big beer to drinkers. the bench. Big that's beer uh, that's uh, right. Those Federalists. <laughs> and you know, uh, one of Washington's uh, nominees was rejected, John Rutledge. One of Madison's was rejected, Alexander Wolcott, you know, and they were rejected for uh, political reasons. So the process has always been political. Uh, what's probably different uh, most recently is that it is now always extraordinarily partisan. And it is almost all, always uh, pretty dishonest, pretty theatrical and pretty dishonest. The, the nominees, by and large, will conceal 
uh, how it is that they will decide cases. Uh, some of the nominees, you know, make up, uh, you know, they dissemble about, you know, judicial philosophy. It usually goes over the head of the senators who usually know less about these things than even the nominee does. So uh, by and large, I mean, in recent years, the process has been largely uh, partisan, uh, theatrical, uh, dishonest, and um, not terribly enlightening. And that's, that's really unfortunate. And you're talking about the process here. You're not casting aspersions on any anybody in particular, but you're saying the process really... Well, is- I'm not limiting myself to uh, the most recent nominee, right. but certainly if you go back, and you don't have to go back too far, uh, when William Rehnquist was nominated and he was uh, at the hearing and asked questions, uh, we know now, um, beyond Cavill, that he authored a memo when he was clerking for Justice Jackson supporting Plessy versus Ferguson, supporting separate but equal, and urging Justice Jackson uh, to vote the opposite way in Brown versus Board of Education. He denied that. He denied that. Uh, We know with regard to uh, Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, you know, he denied all the allegations by, by Anita Hill, and they were almost certainly true. Uh, and not only that, I mean, let's be bipartisan about it. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor, when she was before the confirmation uh, process, you know, she certainly dissembled, and I'm being generous by saying dissembled. Uh, but, you know, she, you know, backtracked on her comments previous to her nomination that judges make policy. She got before the Senate, and all of a sudden, Oh, judges don't make policy, only the Congress makes policy, which of course is just absolutely preposterous and anybody except maybe the senators understands that that to be the case. And then she insisted that her being a Latina uh, was not going to be injected into her votes. And we know, of course, that's going to be injected. And many of us believe that it's good that it's injected because that provides a perspective that other justices may not have. So, I mean, the nominees, by and large, are not particularly honest. They're not particularly candid. Well, let's talk about that, because one of the things that's frustrating for uh, someone that's a court watcher and and cares about the Supreme Court, uh, it cares about the the thought process of a judge that is going to be on the Supreme Court. And when you watch these hearings and you listen to the questions and the answers, it seems impossible to get an answer uh, uh, from uh, the nominee about anything related to the law. And I understand that there's restrictions on judges not being, you know, pre-deciding a case that's before them, but that does not restrict them from talking about their uh, philosophy. Uh, no, you're absolutely right, uh, Dave. I mean, judicial ethics uh, would prohibit, you know, nominees from promising, pledging how they're going to vote on particular issues. But that's a lot different than any kind of prohibition on explaining what their judicial philosophy is or how they view certain issues as opposed to promising how to vote. The problem, uh, in large measure, uh, flows from what happened with Robert Bork because Robert Bork was a known commodity – 
a brilliant judge, a brilliant scholar of the Constitution, and at least at the outset of his confirmation hearings, he was honest about his views about originalism, about original meaning of the text of the Constitution, and about how he thought that certain landmarks were wrongly decided. And after a while, uh, once that got out to the public, uh, he became very, very unpopular. And ever since, ever since then, I mean, the nominees just will not tell us the truth. Right. And, and what you're talking about uh, Judge Robert Bork, he uh, ended up not getting Right, selected. being rejected. He got borked, uh, right. as they say. And, uh, Although Fortis also got Fortis. Yes. You know, yeah, but for so, different reasons. That right. Was, that for different, was actually that's because right. of financial uh, misdealings. Well, I mean, that might have been the excuse they used, but uh, don't forget the... Uh, the Southern Democrats and the Republicans opposed him because they knew he was a liberal and because they knew he would work was working with uh, LBJ on all kinds of civil rights. But I think the, the Bork point is an important one because he did come in and talk about his philosophy. Yes. And he was quite, uh, I mean, he felt very strongly about yes. it. And he, was, and he was certainly very articulate about it and, yes. and, and thoughtful. Right. Uh, and it was not something that was necessarily appreciated by uh, the rest That's of the right. country. But he was very smart and right. and I think relatively consistent in his policy and went up in the nomination process and explained it. Um, and, he, and he was not selected. That's right. Uh, so since then, don't right. we have judges that are realizing what happened to, to Bork and they get into that uh, process and and they say as little as possible. It's a word salad of nothingness when we hear their answers. And is it because of that? Because they feel if I don't say anything, I can't be criticized. Well, yes, it, it's in large measure uh, because of that. If you, for example, just take into account the last couple of nominees, whether they were good nominees or not, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, uh, they in the past before they were nominated to the Supreme Court, made pretty clear in articles that they've written, uh, speeches that they've given, uh, what their judicial philosophy is. Whether, whether their philosophies were sophisticated or not is another story, but their philosophies of originalism and textualism, they made it pretty clear that that's what they think is the way in which what judges ought to apply, justices ought to apply in deciding cases. The problem, of course, with that, uh, let's even imagine that the senators understand that or the general public would understand that. The problem with that is that if the justices actually applied the, such judicial philosophies, we'd never have any of the cherished landmarks that we love. So when you talk to people about you know what you love about being... Uh, an American about, you know, freedom, about this, uh, our liberties, uh, the protections that we have, uh, our equality, equal treatment. You wouldn't have any of those cherished landmarks. They're cherished landmarks because the United States Supreme Court didn't simply just follow the precise words of the Constitution. They didn't follow what the decisions had previously been, they certainly did not follow what the framers were th precisely, specifically thinking in 1787 or uh, when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, what 
what the drafters and uh, what the country was thinking about that. Certainly in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, the country was not thinking that women should be treated equally. They were certainly not thinking uh, about racial integration. Uh, my word, I mean, the 14th Amendment never would have been ratified. And so when we talk about uh, justices or nominees like the last two, when they talk about textualism and they talk about originalism, nobody seems to ask them to say to them, wait a minute, do you understand that the cherished landmarks that we had, we only have them because the Supreme Court refused to be bound by originalism or textualism. They're not asked that. If they were asked that, it would seem to me uh, that the nominees would come across as being unpopular and maybe also much more, we'd have a much more realistic nomination process. Well, I, I'm going to say, I, I seem to recall that Judge Kavanaugh was asked that question and, and didn't answer because one of the senators said, well, you know, you're an originalist and you say you only support the rights that are in the Constitution and then, and then uh, that are written in the Constitution, and then went down the list of other rights that are not specifically enumerated in the Constitution said, which ones of these, you know, don't sure. you, uh, don't you agree with? You know, the right to get married. That's not in the Constitution. Right. You know, uh, the the uh, any number of rights that are not in the Constitution. Um, and so actually, they asked yeah. him specifically, and he refused to answer. That's right. Uh, in a in a I think a, a a roundabout way, never gave an answer to which rights that were unenumerated he he thought uh, sh- should not be a right. 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 This this notion of nominees, and he's not the only one, that the Supreme Court ought not to be creating rights that are not in the Constitution. Well, that presupposes that. The United States Constitution is just a catalog of rights. It absolutely is not that. In fact, the Bill of Rights is extremely limited, and we almost did not have a Bill of Rights because uh, many of the framers were concerned that there would be these nonsensical arguments in the future by either a tyrant or somebody who is entirely ignorant uh, that, well, that's not in the Constitution, so that's not a right. Right, and wasn't that the, I mean, that, w- that was a fear. And when That you- was the argument against the Bill of Rights by people such as Hamilton and Madison originally. That we don't need it, because these are all rights that are... Uh, we don't need it, and we're afraid by enumerating some, then the ones that aren't mentioned would be deemed uh, that the people wouldn't have them. And, I think and so it, that's the nonsense we hear today all the time. I think, you've, as you've pointed out in, you know, on your blog, that's why we have the Ninth Amendment. That's right. Uh, which uh, which uh, makes explicit that the list is, is not complete and not intended to be complete. That's right. That was the caveat. Look, we will declare certain rights, but let's make it clear. We're not saying that this is the full list of them, you know, and you spoke about, you know, other rights that are not in the Constitution. Well, most of our fundamental rights, most of what we think is entailed in being a free society is not mentioned in the Constitution, right? The right to be married, even for opposite sex couples, that ain't in there. The right to have intimate relations with your spouse, that ain't in there. The right to have children, that's not in there. Hey, the right to have a friend, that's not in there. The right to take a shower, that's not in there. None of that stuff is in there. You know, so, I mean, what could you do? And of course, many of the rights uh, that uh, 
those who insist on being textualists and originalists and saying, well, don't be making up rights, uh, they like lots of rights that also aren't mentioned. Right, so they when, like lots so, of rights. So when you say, when you say you're an originalist or a textualist, isn't really a selective originalist because you can pull that card out whenever you want to come to a decision that uh, perhaps uh, you feel there's no justification for, but now you can have some sort of legal justification for it by saying, "Oh, I'm a." It wasn't written, and and in other times, you can maybe not pull that card out. So right. it seems to me. Right. Well, many uh, court observers, uh, s- certainly many who are much brighter than I am, like Richard Posner, uh, one of the great uh, judges uh, of the last several generations from the Seventh Circuit that was appointed by Ronald Reagan. Uh, brilliant, a genius, which is almost certainly why he wasn't put on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, he, like uh like Holmes and like Cardozo, was very, very candid about what judges actually do. And he made clear his view that originalism was nonsense. Number one, that it's nonsense. And number two, that the judges who claim to be originalists don't really apply it anyway. They apply it either selectively or they apply it so flexibly that they get whatever result they want anyway. You know, so it's, uh, I mean, just think. I mean, you know, sometimes it's like, okay, just put the cards on the table. Open your mind. Look what's going on. Why would those justices who are politically conservative, I'm not talking about judicial restraint or strict construction or deferring to the other branches. I mean, those who are politically conservative, they vote on the court like conservative politicians vote. Why is it that they would be endorsing or advocating originalism because it gets them back to values. It gets them back to views and beliefs of a while ago, which is what they agree with. So, for example, you know, Justice Scalia, who became very, very honest, it seems to me, brutally honest at the end of his tenure at the court. Well, because he'd been on such a long time, he didn't have anything to worry about. You know, he made it clear that in his view, the 14th Amendment did not apply to women, right? He was castigated for that. But the truth of the matter is, that is the originalist view of the 14th Amendment. Do you think any nominees today are going to say that? No, they're not going to say that. They're going to fudge. I mean, recently, I mean, very recently, like within the last few weeks, I heard a nominee who insists on being an originalist claiming that, oh, Brown versus Board of Education was a great decision. Okay, you wouldn't have voted that way. If you really believe in originalism, you wouldn't have voted that way because Brown versus Board of Education changed what was the original intent of the 14th Amendment, which was certainly not to allow black boys to go to school with your white daughters. That was never allowed. Uh, Certainly, uh, interracial marriage was never deemed to be uh, permitted by the 14th Amendment. And of course, we had Plessy versus Ferguson. We had a traditional view of equal protection. And Brown versus Board of Education, Brown versus Board of Education said the heck with the original view, a heck with settled principles, uh, where 
we're going on a new path because we think we need to do this for the country. And yet you had a very, very, very recent nominee saying, oh, yeah, that was a great decision. Okay, you would have voted the other way. Right. Right. So now, so we talked about judges that are maybe modifying their views when they present them to the nominating committee, to the Senate, rather. Right. Uh, The uh, the Senate committee, uh, they either modify their views or they, let's say, don't, aren't completely candid about their views when they're answering a question, but they're not necessarily lying. They're just talking about what they want to talk about. But what about when we have a candidate that is lying? about something, whether it be their work on a memo, uh, right. their work bef- many years ago, right. like you talked about uh, right. uh, uh, Judge Rehnquist, or if they're talking about, if they're lying about something small. I mean, we're talking about big things here. Is it okay to lie about something small if you think it's for a, a greater good? Uh, is that okay? Or is that disqualifying? Well, I don't think that there are too many people that believe that lying is a good thing, unless you need to lie for national for actual national security I'm not reasons saying, is it a or good to save thing? somebody's uh, life. Is it is it disqualifying? Of course, it's disqualifying. Of I course, mean, when, of course, it is. Should I mean, be. when we talk about uh, judges, what do we want in a judge? Right? We want a judge to be impartial. We want a judge to be smart. We want a judge to have some good sense of humanity and decency. And certainly the decency includes integrity, being honest. Being honest about what the law is and being honest as to what the law requires. Uh, Being honest with regard to the reasons for which a, a judge is voting a certain way or deciding a case a certain way. Absolutely. Otherwise, how can you possibly rely on the judge? The judge is a liar. How can you rely on that judge? Well, what if the question is, and you you gave the example of Rehnquist, and let's talk right. about that because it's in the past, that he uh, prepared memos to go to for, for right. his judge to go in, a, in an opposite direction That's that right. he ended up. And that was many years ago. That's right. And then years later, it becomes established precedent. Perhaps he is maybe does not want to uh, continue to embrace that position. Uh, but the question is asked: What was your what was your thought process at the time? And it's misrepresented. Is that disqualifying? Well, it would seem to me it should be disqualifying um, because, again, because it seems to be with all the research that's been done uh, uh, recently. And for example, uh, University of Virginia's uh, David O'Brien uh, just completed a book on Justice Jackson and just what Justice Jackson's participation in Brown versus Board of Education was. And of course, Rehnquist was his clerk at the time. So O'Brien had to go through all the files and do all the research about it. And there doesn't seem to be any question whatsoever that the views in that memo were Rehnquist's views. And he was urging Justice Jackson to vote the opposite way that the court did in Brown versus Board of Education. And in fact, Rehnquist was complaining about how liberal the other clerks were, that they were lobbying their judges to uh, vote uh, to overrule Plessy versus Ferguson. Having said that, and that's why these things are so complicated, by any measure, unless you're going to be a complete blind ideologue or partisan, Rehnquist turned out to be 
a very, very fine judge. I may not have voted the way he did, but by any measure, I mean, he was really a fine judge, and he was perhaps even a better uh, chief justice. In fact, even the liberals on the court thought he was a great chief justice. So who knows? So you lie a little here, you lie a little there, but it gets you on the court, and and you're a good justice. So who am I to say one way or the other? But, you know, haven't we, when, when we have a situation where we know that judges are in fact lying, and maybe it's not about the, their legal thought process. Uh, maybe Why, that's some, not important enough? Maybe it's about something that's else. That's not important enough. No, that's so very, I'm an originalist. I'm a textualist. However, you know, oh, I thought that was a great decision. I thought that was a great decision. And we know the you yeah, would have voted I mean, against it. But, I mean, to, let's be honest. I mean, if we had a Supreme Court of nine judges and they were all me, I think we'd have a hard time getting a majority, truthfully. Because, I don't want them I to mean, be all you. I lawyer, don't want them to be all me. Lawyers, lawyers, I'd rather have them be all me than you. <laughs> truthfully but you know you look at things you're taught to look at things from from different ways so i can understand how someone can be relatively honest in their explanation about the law and have written something differently perhaps years ago right but what about when there's a question where it's not there's no room for for there's no gray area it's a question of did you do this or did you not do this? And maybe it has nothing to do with your impression of the law, but has to do with something that you maybe did in your professional career, something you did in your youth, perhaps. Right. And even though maybe the conduct is not disqualifying, isn't the fact that you're lying about it today under oath, shouldn't that make it disqualifying, even if it's something small? Well, I think you and I would agree that it should be disqualifying, except for the fact when you are talking about a nominee who is going to shift the direction of the court in the direction that a majority of the senators want, uh, whether those senators are Democrats or Republicans, it's really too much to think that the senators who want this justice are suddenly going to vote against this justice. Come on, it's not going to happen. This is realism. But we've got, okay. a, you know, hundreds of thousands of lawyers in this country. You can't find another one that is well, of on the right side of whatever your uh, well, political of course views you are. Can. That's, but, that's, you know, pre uh, presidents nominate... Presidents nominate these individuals and, you know, insist that, you know, they're the best this, they're the best that. And again, we know that's preposterous. We know that that's preposterous. I mean, if anybody thinks the current nominee is like the best out there, I mean, come on. I mean, at best, he's, he's mediocre. And the previous one was even less than mediocre. This happens all the time with Republicans and Democrats. Why are they nominated? They're nominated because they are ideologically compatible with the president and the president's party. That's why. I think it was what it was re respect to one of Nixon's nominees. They said even mediocre people <laughs> need to have Harold Carlswell they need to be represented on the Supreme Court, don't oh, they? Oh Lord, Harold Should it only Carlswell. Be smart people? Right. That was part of uh, Nixon's Southern strategy, and uh, he nom well, first he had nominated Clement. 
Clement Hainsworth, who was actually not a bad judge at all, but he went down to defeat. And so Nixon, being the vindictive guy he was, and I voted for him twice, so, you know, you can blame me for that. But uh, Is this a big reveal? <laughs> no, a, no, 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 no. I thought, I actually thought, other than the fact that he was paranoid and corrupt, I thought he was a pretty good nice, president. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why people don't necessarily need to be virtuous to be good presidents. But I do think it's different when, you, when you're talking about a judge. I think judges need to be virtuous. They also need to be competent. Harold Carlswell, who Nixon nominated just to be vindictive, was viewed by virtually everybody except perhaps segregationists as being incompetent. Right? So... Um, but, you know, I mean, the presidents insist that these people they're nominating are great. You know, when do we talk about great? I mean, we know, you and I know what we're talking about. We're talking about Holmes, who was already a great jurist on the great court of Massachusetts. We're talking about Benjamin Cardozo, who was already a great jurist on the great court, our New York Court of Appeals. Felix right. Frankfurter, who was a great professor at Harvard Law School. You know, John Marshall Harlan, uh, po uh, appointed by Eisenhower, who was a great public lawyer, and he was a, uh, great, uh, a great individual who, who knew what the law was about. I mean, he was very well respected. You know, these are greats. These are greats. You know, Scalia, and I certainly didn't agree with Scalia uh, about much, but, you know, Scalia was a real scholar. He was a real smart guy. He actually had a well-thought-out uh, judicial philosophy. Whether he followed it or not is another story, but he had a well-thought-out judicial philosophy. He was an admired professor at University of Virginia, University of Chicago. You know... Those are people with a great deal of merit, but you know, most of the time we get we get mediocrities, and yet the president and and the parties that are supporting the president, you know, insist that they're great. I mean, we know they're not. You know, when I'm when I'm troubled, and I am often troubled these days by what's going on in in Washington, I read the Federalist Papers to say, yeah. how did we get here? What were we thinking? And you know, you read the Federalist Papers, and you realize how brilliant uh, our founders were. W but when they thought about the nomination of judges, they wanted to ha let the president decide, basically. Let, the, let one person decide, not a council of people right. who are potentially in, uh, political and, and, and had their hands tied to one group, faction or the other. Let the president decide, have complete discretion, almost complete discretion, and then just let it be run through the Senate um, so that he doesn't pick his, you know, his brother-in-law right. or somebody that's completely incompetent, as, as you've talked about. So when we talk about the Senate really getting deeply into these things, which I personally think they should, um, when you look at how it was set up, um, it doesn't seem like that was the intent, that even if the judge that the president selected wasn't the best, that that's still pretty much okay because it's his or her choice. Well, well certainly the Federalists, uh, Hamilton and Jay, they wanted the president to have virtual plenary authority over who gets on the United States Supreme Court, but they were hardly the only ones at the founding 
and many of the other uh, founders and framers, they didn't want to give that much authority to the president, which is why the Constitution itself simply says that the president is the one who nominates. But he doesn't appoint by himself. The president appoints with the advice and consent of the Senate. So that was something that was deliberately put in there to put a check on the president. You know, the founders and the framers were all about all kinds of checks. Right. Right? And the checks were in place because they viewed people right. as inherently corrupt and weak. And the balance uh, would be able to, to offset that. And they thought, you know, an individual, one individual president selected by the people would be in a better position to make an independent choice as to who should be on the bench. And that if it was left entirely to the Senate, then it would just be some sort of trade-off uh, that you'd find. That's right. And but, they, but let's you not needed for- to have the Senate there to make to, to keep the president in check, so that he would pick somebody that a wouldn't be right. rejected because it would be an embarrassment to most presidents. Um, I'm not sure if uh, currently there is uh, such a thing as an embarrassment. Uh, uh, to our current president, but the, the I think the concept was one that the president would take the heat if they nominated somebody that was uh, not worthy. That's right, and and again, even at the very beginning of the republic, the Senate rejected one of George Washington's. I mean, think of George Washington. Could he ever do anything wrong? Could he ever be partisan? Well, other than of course appointing all partisans to the court. Uh, one of his nominees was rejected by the Senate. And James Madison, the author of the Constitution, right? Right. Uh, he, I mean, one of his was rejected by the Senate. So, I mean, the Senate has had a pretty powerful role from the very, very beginning. In fact, my own view is a little different than yours, and I think the Senate ought to be a little bit more engaged in selecting uh, who these nominees are. And and I, for one, don't think there's anything wrong with senators rejecting someone because of the person's ideology, if they think the person is too extreme. You know, and we've had, uh, we've had in the last several decades, we've had nominees, and not just Bork, who have records, uh, previous judicial records, who show them to be extreme. Right. And there are some senators who say, well, it's within the discretion of the president, and as long as the person is qualified, meaning the person went to a certain law school and got good grades, that, you know, the Senate should just go along. No. I don't know where they even get that from. Yeah, yeah let's, let, let me ask you about that. Are we seeing uh, more polarizing candidates because of the change that we've that happened in the Senate where it used to be one senator could basically hold up a nomination um, by um, uh, a filibuster. filibuster, And then the only way you could get around that would be if you had 60. That's right. If you had 60 senators, which which would mean you'd have to cross the aisle in most instances. Now, when you get rid of that, you just need a majority to, to end the filibuster for the U.S. Supreme Court. You, the, the 60, rule to end the filibuster really had a moderating effect because if you selected someone that was eh, maybe a right. little bit conservative right. but not not the most conservative you would say well maybe we should go with this one because 
the next one could be even more conservative. So maybe we did pretty well. And the president also knew that. If I selected the most conservative person out right. there that I can think of, which is apparently what happened uh, most recently, it, it, it might not get through. So let me pick someone that's more moderate. And, and it, isn't, right. that, isn't that really the reason why we're, we're where we are, one of the reasons that we're getting such polarizing candidates? Yes, and with regard to picking somebody that's more moderate, I mean, that's exactly what uh, President Barack Obama did with regard to Merrick Garland. Now, if you look at voting records, and, you know, many political yep. scientists and some law professors do this. Like yourself. And, you know, I, mean, you, and, you know I do this. Court watcher. Uh, but, for example, Merrick Garland on his court was right down the middle, right in the middle. I mean... The more recent nominees have been over at the extreme uh, right end. Merrick Garland was in the middle. Why would Barack Obama do that? Oh, because Barack Obama was more virtuous than other presidents. I mean, I love Barack Obama, but come on. Yes, and he was. But that wasn't right. the reason. But that was not <laughs> no, the reason. No, the fact of the matter is he knew that that would be the only kind of nominee he possibly could get through the Senate. And he couldn't even get that through the Senate. So once the Republicans get rid of the filibuster uh, for Supreme Court uh, nominations, they don't have to worry about anybody that's moderate. They don't have to worry about that at all. So, you, you know, you get more extreme candidates. But look, we've been getting real partisan, polarizing nominees, and let's just be blunt about it. We've been getting that since the United States Supreme Court decided actually to take uh, civil rights and civil liberties seriously. It started with Brown versus Board of Education. Eisenhower's nominee, the great John Marshall Harlan uh, II, a conservative, but who, who almost certainly supported Brown versus Board of Education before he was on the court, he faced opposition from certain Republicans and from Southern Democrats because they were afraid that he would continue to support decisions like Brown versus Board of Education. Then you had Loving versus Virginia, interracial marriage, right? Uh, you had cases like that, and ever since then, ever since then, we've had these real cultural issues. And the cultural issues, we can make believe it's all about merit, but you know, it's not about merit. It's about these cultural issues, these hot button issues, and presidents and their parties want to ensure that they get a nominee who's going to vote the way they want that nominee to vote on these cultural issues. Which is why, for example, Anthony Kennedy was Ronald Reagan's third choice. Third choice. He picked Bork. Bork blew up in his face. Then Doug Ginsburg. Doug Ginsburg blew up in his face. Well, let's talk about Ginsburg real quick. Because Doug Ginsburg, yeah. Doug Ginsburg, because he... Uh, his nomination was withdrawn because withdrawn. he smoked marijuana, smoking marijuana, and he was pulled out. Uh, and uh, d it seemed at the time that if there was something came out that was incriminating, that you would that the president would sit down with you and say, "Look, um, you know, I I understand uh, that this has come out, right or wrong. You're a good guy. I wanted you, but for the good of." Me for the good of the country, you need to. Um, I think you're your being name. a little too idealistic, Dave. Don't you I think? think no, because I think at the time smoking marijuana was deemed by again 
a lot of the southern uh, southern senators and the Bible Belt senators as being, you know, as bad as any really heinous crime. And Douglas Ginsburg was smoking marijuana. That was deemed to be absolutely awful, a terrible, terrible crime. Yes. And I think that's why he had to withdraw, because there were so many of these conservative, culturally conservative senators who never would have supported somebody who smoked marijuana. And then, of course, Reagan finally was so frustrated with the right wingers in his cabinet that he went to uh, Anthony Kennedy. Uh, and let me just tell you a story about that. When Anthony Kennedy was nominated, I was actually, uh, it was actually during my Supreme Court fellowship. A couple of uh, individuals that I knew from the University of Virginia were actually working with Attorney General Edward Beese at the time. And they were writing all these speeches for him about originalism and all this kind of stuff. So after Bork blew up, uh, Reagan had scheduled a press conference. He was going to announce his nominee. So I called up uh, my friends in the Attorney General's office and I said, so what's the president going to do? And uh, this is what I was told, and I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm quoting somebody. He said, well, we've got to rush over to the White House with the general, meaning the attorney general, because Reagan's going to be nominating that homo lover, Anthony Kennedy, from San Francisco. Hmm. About an hour later, Anthony Kennedy apparently was on the plane back to San Francisco, and Ronald Reagan was there nominating Doug Ginsburg. You know, and then finally, like I said, when he went down in flames because he smoked marijuana, of all things, uh, then finally Reagan nominated uh, Anthony Kennedy. And to be sure, Anthony Kennedy turned out to be much, much more moderate than the other nominees that uh, Reagan and his inner circle wanted on the court. That's well, fascinating. We're talking about the Supreme Court nomination process here on Miranda Warnings with Vin Bonventry. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and your, uh, your thoughts. Uh, certainly, uh, we're living in interesting times. We have a feature on uh, Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where you can share a, a, a performance of any kind. Uh, with our with our Miranda Warnings audience uh, that you want to uh, enlighten us with? Sure. Uh, well, I knew you had this feature, so I thought about it, and I thought about, well, music, that's, that's kind of nonpartisan, right? <laughs> music, well, of course, I love anything that Billie Holiday did. I love uh, the Puccini operas, but on top of everything else is Frank Sinatra, you know, and... Uh, I saw, well, I saw Frank Sinatra several times, but one time in particular, I saw him at Carnegie Hall, I think it was 1984, and uh, he had been out of retirement, right, for a few years by then, and uh, of course the show was phenomenal. The interesting thing is for me was right in front of me, literally sitting right in front of me, and we were pretty pretty much up front because my brother's my older brother's wealthy and he has connections so we got really good seats so uh, right in front of me was Joe Piscopo who at the time was imitating Frank Sinatra on on Saturday Night Live a few seats over was Tony Bennett was Tony Bennett so uh, Frank is singing and he says all right uh, I'm gonna sing a song uh, written by Michelle Legrand and uh, lyrics by the Bergmans and uh, he says Tony you gotta sing this song 
And uh, it's that song, How Do You Keep the Music Playing? I don't know if you know that. How do you keep the music playing? How do you make it last? So, you know, absolutely magnificent song, you know. And uh, I mean, you can't but help melt because of that. And uh, sure enough, uh, Tony Bennett then recorded it. And a few years later, just about as Frank was retiring, I actually brought my three boys, who were little kids at the time, I brought them to see Frank Sinatra in Syracuse, just so for the rest of their lives they could say, yeah, I saw the man, Frank Sinatra. Well, that's great, and we've got singing here now on Miranda Warnings. <laughs> we're go I'm going to change our theme music. Uh, we're going to make it Vin Bonventry singing, How Do You Keep the Music Going? So thank you very much, Ben. Great to be with you, Dave. Thanks. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't.